Thanks for joining us at First Baptist of Woodlawn. Our mission at Woodlawn is to grow, serve, and reach others together. Our vision at Woodlawn is to impact our regional communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ through small groups, corporate worship and missions, and evangelism. Now, today's sermon. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is going to be our diving off spot this morning. Our, our jumping in place. I feel led this morning to, to deviate from our current study through the book of Romans. Um, some of you probably said, thank you Lord Jesus. Uh, I was looking, we have covered in the last 14 months uh, from Romans chapter 5 to Romans chapter 12. So we're moving along at a pretty good pace. Uh, listen, there's a lot of things in that book. So uh, we, are, we are doing well. But this morning, it's really my heart to, to share with you some principles about what it means to truly be born again what it means to be born again, and what the process of being born again looks like, as the Apostle Paul put it in the, the uh, letter to the Colossians, to be transferred from a realm of darkness into a realm of light. So if you don't mind, let's start by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. It says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Father, help us this morning to study from Your Word, to learn what it means to be miraculously, supernaturally, converted. Lord, to see the Spirit of God work repentance and faith into the heart of a man and, and of his own volition choose to become a child of the King, being transformed by the power of the Spirit as he walks in faith. So Lord Jesus, help us see that clearly this morning. We ask this in your Son's precious name. Amen. In the seventh grade, I walked into a, uh, a language arts class to take a test that I had not studied for. Did any of you ever take a test in which you had not studied for? Let me ask you this one question, and I, and I don't care. You can go ahead and, and raise your hands. Have any of you ever taken a test that you had not studied for, that you knew nothing about, and got a 100 on the test. We've got one, two, three, I'm number four. But all the rest of you flunked, right? They studied. The, the Apostle Paul, to his letter to the Corinthians, tells them at the end of the book, he tells them, examine yourself that you be in the faith. 
yourselves. In other words, he says, test yourself to make certain that you really are a child of God. That was to a group of people who had said that they were children of God, who were involved in church, who were involved in ministry, whom had correspondence with the apostle. He, he told them, Test yourself to see that you be in the faith. Now, immediately what happens is, is when I say that I'm going to preach a gospel message, many of us who have been church members for a long time or have been involved in a church at some point in our life or have been baptized, we immediately check out because we think that maybe this is not for us. But what I need you to understand this morning is that the Apostle Paul is not writing or giving this command to unbelievers, but he's giving it to those people who are in the church. You know that Jesus gave a parable about the wheat and the tares? That there are wheat and tares, and they both grow side by side, and they look very similar. But one has a product, which is a grain of wheat that is useful, and the other one is not useful. They grow side by side. One looks just like the other. And yet one is productful and one is not. In Charles Spurgeon's famous work, Lectures to My Students, the very first lecture, the very first piece of advice that he gave to those men who had sought him out to train them in the ministry, these were men who had surrendered their life to preach, is he looked at them and he said, make certain that you know for a fact that you're a child of God. Matter of fact, Jesus even alludes to this in the book of Matthew that there will be many people who one day will stand before God thinking that they have been believers in Christ Jesus and He will look at them and say what? Depart from me, for I never knew you. And these are men who are women who have done great works in the church. They said, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not even cast out demons in your name? So the call for the believer to truly examine themselves at this particular point in their Christian journey is something that the Bible, through several evidences, makes very plain as something we ought to do. So here's what I want you to do with me this morning. Let's take a test. Let's take a test and let's really get honest with ourselves and let's look at what the Bible teaches True conversion, or being born again, looks like. So that we can know, matter-of-factly, that we are children of God. And by the way, can I debunk a theory real quick? There are a lot of people who think that you can never really know for certain that you are a child of God. But, John writes to the church and he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may know you're children of God. There is assurance that comes with salvation. But a lot of people come into a situation in a church and they think they're okay and they're not. I, I really don't have this outline, but, but can, can, I, can I just talk to you for a second just as a, as a shepherd to his sheep? There are a lot of people who get involved in religiosity. They get involved in ministry at church, or they get involved in worship services, or they get involved 
in participating in some activity that the church has. Maybe they even are baptized or they go through some kind of new members class. But they've really never experienced the power of God that changes their life and makes them a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm afraid that one of the issues in in many of our churches all across the world is that they are full of unconverted religious people. Preacher, that's kind of hard. I know. This is not an easy thing to preach this morning. But it's necessary. Because I want us all to know that we are believers in Christ Jesus. I think that there is a clear understanding of what the gospel is that needs to take place in the life of every person before they can understand and truly be saved. Truly be a child of God. Let me just just for a second go through some things that I believe the gospel is that are imperative for you to know that you're a child of God and to know that the gospel that you have accepted is the true gospel and the right gospel. Let me, let me just say this. I, I think the first thing that we have to understand before a person can genuinely be converted and become a Christian is that they have and we are in need, in great need of a Savior. There's another way to say that. You've got to get lost before you can get saved. There's a lot of people who really don't believe that they are in need of a great Savior. Oftentimes in theology, there is a illustration, an illustration that is used where they say that a man is floating in the water and he's just about to go under and, and all he needs is just a little help or a little assistance to get to shore or to get to the boat. And that Jesus is nothing more than than a life raft or a pair of flippers that somebody gives Him to help Him. But brothers and sisters, what we believe the Bible teaches is that men are dead in their trespasses and sin and there is not... They don't need rescuing. They need reviving. That They don't need to have somebody come and do CPR on them, they need a resurrection. And that's what true Bible teaching teaches about our state, that we are in need of a great Savior. And and so I would ask you this morning, when did you come under the realization that you needed a great Savior, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and that there was no hope for you apart from Christ? The, The next thing is this. I think we have to understand the part of the gospel that not only were we in need of a great Savior, but that God sent a great Savior. His name was Jesus. And can I just say this this morning? Uh, we, we are in... What, what did I say the other day? We're not in the buckle of the Bible belt, but we're in the little button that's above it. On your britches. Y'all don't get that? There are a lot of people who say, I know Jesus. 
I imagine if you knocked on every door in Woodlawn, the vast majority of people would say, either I'm a believer or I'm a Christian or I know Jesus. But what we need to understand is that, is that God sent Himself. He sent a great Savior that was equal and greater than the need that you had. But most of the time, when people say, I know Jesus, what they mean is, I've been to church a couple of times. Or, if I had to identify with a major belief system, it would be that of Christianity, and Jesus is the founder of that, so I know Jesus. But that is not enough to overcome the sin debt that you owe to God God sent a Savior to be a propitiation for you. And this Jesus that He sent is greater than anything that you could put your trust in. Any belief system, any ideology, any worldview, God sent a great Savior and He is the only way. He is the only way. Here's another way to say this. Not only do you have to know that there's a great Savior, but you have to reject everything else but Him. See, there are a lot of people who believe that I can just add Jesus onto my life. And maybe the Arabs are right. Maybe the Buddhists are right. And who knows? We can really never know for certain. And I'm here to tell you today that there is one way. His name is Jesus. And unless you reject everything else but Him, you have not accepted Him. Some people say, well, that's a pretty narrow view. Can I remind you that the Bible said that narrow is the way, straight is the gate, and wide is the way that leads to destruction. It's a very inclusive view. Yes, it is. Hallelujah. God sent a Savior. The, 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 the third thing that you need to realize is this. Is that that Savior that God sent lived a perfect life. In perfection. Not or, or without blemish. With, with no sin. Guys, I feel like sometimes my body... And, 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 and I produce sin and drink it like water. You know, you, you understand what I'm feeling? Jesus didn't do that. He was perfect. He, was, he exemplified everything that we as humans were supposed to be in a perfect created world. And He did it in a fallen world. So this God sent Jesus to be the only way, and He was a perfect person. And when He was on the cross of Christ, when He was hung up as a perfect sacrifice between heaven and earth, on a Roman cross, that there was something that happened on that cross called the atonement of sin. The propitiation of for our sin. In other words, God took Jesus, He hung Him on a cross as a perfect sacrifice, what we should have been, and what theologians call the great exchange took place. The wrath of God that was due to you for your sin was poured out on the Lord Jesus. 
Brother J.R., every sin you ever committed, Jesus paid the penalty for, which, by the way, was God's wrath in an eternal state in, in a place called hell. And then somehow in the miraculousness and the supernaturalness of the, the, the cross, Jesus did that in about six hours for the entire world. Dustin, every sin that you committed, Stan, every sin that you committed, Brother Tim, every sin that you committed, the Lord Jesus drank down the full wrath towards that sin, and He did it for you. Can I say that if you're sitting under the sound of my voice this morning, here's what you need to understand. Is that the sin that you've committed and the sins that you will commit in your lifetime, Jesus paid the penalty for those. He drank down the wrath of God that He had that was due, justly due to go towards you and Jesus took it upon Himself. These are things that I believe must be understood to hear the gospel clearly. Can, 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 I, can I just stop there for a second? And I don't want to, to be a preacher who feel, you feel like is railing against other people. It's not what I'm trying to do. But brothers and sisters, there is such a false presentation of the gospel in many churches, many ministries, that say that all that has to happen is that you just make a decision to follow Jesus and there's no mention of the atoning work of His... All you have to do is come and, and, and chew your pop or pop your bubbles as you walk down the aisle and, and read the four spiritual laws track and say, okay, God, I'm good. And yet never one time is the, is the wrath of God being taken on for you mentioned in those gospel presentations. And I have to say that I believe that if that is the case, we're not hearing the full extent of what the glory of Christ did on the cross for us. When did you realize that Jesus became a propitiation, that He became a substitute for you? When did you realize that, that it should have been you hanging on a cross receiving the wrath of God? I believe you also have to believe that Jesus and know and know that after three days in a tomb, Friday evening, Saturday, Sunday morning, three distinct days, that Jesus rose again. By the way, do you, it's kind of interesting you do a study. How, did Jesus, how was Jesus raised from the dead? Well, the, the Scripture says that God the Father raised Him. says that the Spirit raised Him. It says that He raised Himself. In three different places. So through His own power and the power of the Godhead, this man who was crucified for your sins and who defeated death, hell, and the grave was raised to newness of life and now sits beside God and reigns over this universe triumphantly, defeating sin, hell, and the grave. I, I hate to make absolute statements, but brothers and sisters, there are time for absolute statements. And I believe this is one of them. 
I believe that those are the things that you have to have in a gospel understanding in order to be converted. If you take those main primary things away from from your gospel experience, from your conversion experience, any one of those things taken away, in my opinion, shows that there is uh, something missing. Now, I want you to understand, I don't want to confuse you this morning. Some of us may have to look at our conversion experience and say, where was that at it? And it was there, but we just hadn't recognized it. But here's what I'm railing against this morning, I guess, if you use that term or so choose to. I'm railing against the idea that we can have a decisional regeneration where people just simply make a decision to follow Jesus. That's anti-biblical. Let me show you why. Let me show you why. Because there are some common elements to everybody's salvation. Not only do you have to understand the gospel, but you also have to have some common things and themes that happen in your testimony. Okay? I've given you this illustration before. But one time, I was uh, visiting with a man in a hospital. And and here's what he said. Y'all ready for this? I asked him, I said, do you know for certain that you're a believer and and that if something were to happen, you would, that that your sins are covered and taken care of? And he said, yeah. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, my testimony is this. I was having a real bad time in my marriage. I was having a real bad time in my work. And here's what happened. I got so concerned, I went out behind the barn and I looked up at the night sky and there was three stars there. One for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. And I just knew everything was going to be okay. That's his testimony. But I want you to understand that there are a multiplicity of people who walk around thinking that we are okay and yet their testimony does not reflect what the Bible teaches is a biblical conversion testimony. Their testimony is I had an ooey-gooey feeling or I planted a tomato steak out back and said, there it is right there, God, I put it all right there. I've heard that one. I was driving down the road and a song came on the radio and I got a ushy-gushy feeling and I just knew I was going to be okay. I've heard that one. But brothers and sisters, what you need to understand this morning is that the testimony that God works in every single person is always the same no matter where you're coming from. It has the same elements. Now some of you might be ex-mobsters. And have done some things that are despicable. And some of you might be Sunday school teachers that got saved. Some of you might be inmates. And some of you might be uh, public servants that have never done anything wrong. But no matter where you are or what your circumstances are, you will all have the same elements to your testimony. Conviction of sin. Repentance. Turning away from that sin. Faith in the Lord Jesus in that gospel that I just presented. And then a changed life that produces good work that God's prepared for you beforehand, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at those. Let's look at those this morning. The first thing is this. We're talking about the new birth here. We're talking about regeneration. 
Let me read to you out of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, Article 5 on salvation. That is, that is what we adhere to as our, as our confession of faith at First Baptist Woodlawn. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace whereby believers become, listen to this, believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. So the first thing I want you to understand that every person has in their testimony is simply this. They have a, they have a time whenever the Spirit of God born them again. Whenever they were born again. Whenever they became a new creature in Christ Jesus. And my question to you is, when were you born again? That's a good biblical term, amen? When were you born again? When did the Spirit of God work in your heart, show you conviction of sin, cause you to respond in repentance and faith, and as you believed of your own free will, you, you, you came and God did such a work in your heart that it changed you, made you a new creature. When did that first happen? See, there are a lot of people who really believe this, is that you just kind of float around and, and eventually there's just this progressive thing and, and you, you just find yourself being a Christian. Brothers and sisters, what I believe is, is it's not... And they will rail against and say, well, you don't have to have a time and a place and you don't have to have it written down in your Bible. Listen, brothers and sisters, I want you to know something this morning. I'm not saying you have to know the exact time or the exact place when you got saved. I can't tell you what day or month it was when I got saved, but I can take you to within about six inches of where it happened. Because here's what I know. I know for a matter of a fact that when the Spirit of God starts to work Holy Ghost conviction in you, you start to get uncomfortable and you start to see God doing things that He's never done in your life before. I'll never forget the first time the Spirit of God spoke to me, Miss Darla. Here's what happened. I was sitting in the church pew, just like one of these young men right here, and I have no idea what was going on. There were some other teenagers. They were kind of playing around. And I wasn't because I was a good kid in church. By the way, this happened at Emmanuel Baptist Church where Brother Tim was pastor. For a, for a while. Faithfully. And as I was sitting there, the Spirit of God just spoke to me and said this. He said, you're lost. You, you need to have your sins forgiven. Now, it wasn't an audible voice. If it had been, it would have been Hebrew. I wouldn't have been able to understand it. But in my spirit, the, the Spirit of God so started to work and stir in my heart that I knew that there was something wrong with me, that I was a sinner, that I needed salvation. And on through the years, the Spirit of God started to deal with me, turn my heart upside down. Put little pinpricks in my heart, little check marks, knowing that, that there was something that was not right between me and the God of heaven. That's called Holy Ghost conviction. I don't, I don't think we use that term enough in churches. Listen to me. 
this morning. Listen to what 1 Corinthians says. It says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There is a time when the Spirit of God will come into your life and He will start to put you under such conviction that you know that you need a Savior. By the way, the Bible calls it godly sorrow. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not a pleasant thing for the God of all creation to start to work in you and show you your unworthiness and your sinfulness and your lewdness and to start to point out to you your sins. Yeah, you curse a lot. You smoke a lot. You lust a lot. You lie a lot. You're ugly to your wife and your kids. You're mean to your husband. You're just a jerk to your co-workers. Boy, as the Spirit of God starts to point those things out in your life, there's a sorrow that comes over you. And it makes you feel guilty. It makes you feel bad. It makes you feel horrible for who you are. And here's the response many times. The response to that godly sorrow many times is this. I'm just going to buck up and be better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to sin less. I'm going to not be such a jerk to everybody. I'm going to treat my wife and kids better. I'm not even going to kick the dog whenever it bites my ankles. But here's the problem. It never works. And you find yourself in this cycle of godly sorrow where you know that you need something that you can't produce on your own. Godly sorrow. The Bible says here that that sorrow works repentance or produces a repentance. Now what repentance is, is repentance is when is, is when you turn away from what you are and start to turn to what God says He has provided for you. And I always make this illustration, and some of you have, have caught it, but repentance really is a military term. And the idea is that you are marching one way. And as you are marching, you stop and you halt and you turn around and you go the other way. Now, that's not just some arbitrary thing that God has said you ought to do to be saved. What He's saying is, is that you are walking in a line away from Him. Towards the things of the world and those things that you desire that are not good for you. And you ought to repent and stop living for yourself and turn around and walk towards Him who has the answer and can get you out of this mess of godly sorrow in your life. He's got the answer in the Lord Jesus. Do you see that? So He calls you through the power of the Holy Spirit to start to stir in you this godly sorrow about your sin. Which, by the way, can I just make this statement? Is a grace of the Lord Jesus. 
You know, a lot of people don't like the idea of conviction or godly sorrow. And one of the reasons is, is because it hurts. You know, it's kind of like, y'all don't know what happened. A lot of you don't, but I shaved my head, or Dustin shaved my head on Thursday night. And let me tell you the story, backstory behind that, okay? My hair was starting to get a little foofy on the sides and really thin in the middle. And my son drew a family picture of us. And I looked at it and said, who is that? And he said, well, it's you, Dad. And it was this guy in a long black trench coat, and he had a bozo haircut. And I just told Jenny, I said, if that's the way that my son sees me, we can't have that. So I invited Dustin over to shave my head. Guys, whenever I saw the reality of what my hair actually looked like, it didn't feel good. When the Spirit of God starts to work in your heart, it's not going to feel good. When He starts to point out all the ways that you are faulty and all the ways you are defective and all the ways that you, you have sinned and you have hurt the living God, it doesn't feel good. But I'm telling you, it's a grace. It is a grace. Because God could have just left you alone and let you die and go to hell in your sin. That is grace on top of grace. So this morning, if you felt godly sorrow, don't be offended at God. Don't be scared. Don't be nervous. You need to understand that that is the love of God pouring out in your life to get you to where you need to be so that you can repent of who you are and turn away from who you've been and turn to the Lord Jesus. And as you repent, you turn away from Him and start to walk in Him. God does something amazing. The Baptist Faith and Message in Article 5 says this, that sinners respond in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it makes this proclamation that repentance and faith are inseparable graces of God. The man who sees his need before God and turns to Him in repentance at the same time inseparably starts to believe on the Lord Jesus in faith. Do you know what I call that? This is my good old West Kentucky vernacular coming out, okay? I call it agreeing with God. Because here's what happened. God's telling you you're a sinner. God's telling you you're lost. God's showing you your sin. He's showing you your need for a Savior. And when you repent and believe in Him, all you're doing is just agreeing with what God's already told you that you had wrong about yourself. See, before you thought I was okay. I thought I was doing good. I thought, man, I'm, I'm walking. Got a good haircut now. Got some good looking clothes on. My worship leader's dressed me now with these nice woodlawn polos. Got a good-looking car, got a Tahoe that's a 2003 with the paint pulling off the hood. Man, everybody wants one of those. I'm doing good. And then the Spirit of God starts to speak to your heart. So when you repent and when you turn in faith to respond to the Lord Jesus and accept the fact that He was your propitiation, 
All you're doing is simply agreeing with what God is already telling you and disbanding what you had previously thought about yourself. You're turning and saying, God, I am a wretch. God, I am vile. God, I am unworthy of you. But I also believe that you sent your son to be a propitiation for every one of those sins. And as you do that, as you turn away from your sin and walk to God, I believe that the greatest miracle, even greater than the creation of the world, happens in your heart. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God creates a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 37 says that God takes out a heart of stone which is dead and puts in a heart of flesh which is alive. And for the first time in your life, as you've turned away from your sins and you turn to Christ, you are alive spiritually. And you can now... Know the living God. You can now be a part of the kingdom and the family of the Lord Jesus who died for you. You can now understand spiritual truths. You can now worship, really worship. You can now serve, really serve. Because of what God has done in your heart. What are the results of this changed heart? Guys, I want you to understand that the Bible is very clear about something. The Bible is very clear about the fact that works that you do in the flesh are not the vehicle that God uses to grant you salvation. But, at the same time, the Bible says that when God changes you and gives you a new heart in the Lord Jesus, that He will, through that new heart, produce good works through you. The book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, By grace we've been saved by faith. Right? Not by works. Lest anybody should boast. But... God has prepared good works for you beforehand that you might walk in them. Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works and wills to do in your life. The idea here is that because you have had this change of heart, because God has done this new thing in your life, He's put this new heart in you. Ezekiel 37 says that He will cause you to walk in His statutes and obey His ordinances. That there is something in you that now desires for you to walk with God in a way you never have before. My pastor, Mike Morrow, used to say this all the time. He said, God... When God saves you, He changes your want to. You used to want to do this, but now, because of what God's done in you, you want to do something different. You want to serve the King. You used to want to drink beer and get drunk, but now you want to serve God. You used to want to carouse around, but now you want to minister to people. You used to be just a jerk, and now God's changed you and made you something else because you want to be something else. You see, God 
changes the heart. He changes the individual. As a matter of fact, the entire book of 1 John is written to show you what a new believer looks like in Jesus. And it's something that's different than what they were before. The litmus test to know, am I a believer, is this. Have you heard the right gospel? Has the Spirit of God convicted you of your sins? Have you repented of those things and trusted in the Lord Jesus, agreeing with Him about what you are and what you need to get you out of your situation of sin death and grievance towards Him? And when that happened, did God give you a new heart that caused your want to to change? That caused you to want to be something different? That made you something new? Something that you weren't before? Brothers and sisters, here's what I need you to understand this morning. There may be people here in this congregation under the sound of my voice this morning who've been playing church for years and years and years. But they've really never had a true conversion experience. Maybe some of you young people here this morning who have never accepted Jesus as your Savior. And you've heard this this morning. You, you want and feel the Spirit of God for the very first time moving in your heart to bring you to repentance and faith. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. That is a grace of God. He loves you. He's not wanting you to feel bad for the sake of feeling bad. He's wanting you to come to Him so you'll experience the love that He has for you in the Lord Jesus. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who just because of hearing this have had the fire of God rekindled in your soul about what God actually did for you. Here's what I want you to know. God loves each and every one of you. He sent Jesus to die for you so that you could know the love of Christ. But you'll not know it believing anything other and responding in any other way than what I've said this morning. If you think your works are going to get you to heaven, if you think if you think that you're a church attendance or you think you're tithe money or you think that your ministry in the church or, or whatever it is is going to get you to know the love of God. And by the way, getting to heaven is not the goal. That's a benefit. It's knowing the Lord Jesus in His fullness. I want to ask you all to stand every head bow, every eye closed as we come. We're going to pray. Listen, brothers and sisters, I, I know that I know that there are many of you who serve, but listen, what, what the Apostle Paul did to the church at Corinth was this. He said, examine yourselves, church, to make certain you're in the faith. Examine yourself, you who calls yourself a Christian, to make sure that you're in the faith. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we're dealing with eternity. Jesus, I pray You'd help us this morning. Spirit of God, I pray that You would work. Lord, I agree with the old hymn, all is vain unless the Spirit 
of the Holy One comes down. God, we just believe that You are powerful enough to work in the hearts of men and to save men and women. Lord, we believe that, God, we don't have to use gimmicks or anything else to get people to come, but God, that You can do it and You want to do it and You sent Your Son to save sinners. So God, I pray now that You'd save them. Just like You saved this sinner. 20-something years ago. Oh God, help us. May I ask this in the name of Your blessed Son, Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like to know more about our relationship with Jesus or more about our church at Woodlawn, please contact us by email at info at fbcwoodlawn.org. Please join us again next week for another sermon from First Baptist of Woodlawn. Be glorified, Jesus be man.